Please turn with me to the New Testament and to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say to you, Whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man, also will confess before the angels of God. But who who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you who have so plainly declared your intention to grant the help of the Holy Spirit to those who seek to be faithful, those who seek to declare your truth. Lord, how we pray that your Holy Spirit might enable us this day, as myself, the preacher, that you'd enable me to speak the truth in love, that you'd enable me to rightly convey the truth of this passage and its application to us. And Lord, to this people, that we might gladly receive this treasure, that we might gladly receive this light, to our salvation, to our upholding, to our blessing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we carry on in Luke chapter 12. I just read the first verse of that, which was, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I remind us of that because although we are now in the section uh, between verses 8 and 12, this remains the context, this remains the larger subject, this remains the point of departure. It's about hypocrisy. You recall what was at the root of the Pharisees' hypocrisy? It was the fear of man and the corresponding lack of the fear of God that drove them to, do, to say and to do as they did. And the antidote to hypocrisy is the reality of Jesus' words found in verse 4. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. That is, if they do their absolute worst, that is the worst that they can do is to kill the body. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. 
Yes, I say to you, fear him. So we should fear God rather than man. The question remains, it's not answered at that point, the question remains, who is God going to cast into hell? We should fear him who has that power, but who is that awful judgment going to be rendered upon? Who is God going to cast into hell and who is he going to spare? Well, of course, the question, the answer is those who belong to the mediator, those who belong to the redeemer, those who belong, belong to Christ, those whom Christ himself will identify with. And so the, the question then changes from whom should you fear, that's the most basic thing that drives us, that ought to drive us, to whom will Christ confess on that day? Whom will Christ identify with and say, these are my people, don't cast them in hell. In fact, as we shall see, Christ himself is the judge. He's the one who will be rendering that judgment. Now, once again, we are thrown from the temporary and the frail and fragile judgments of this world and this time right now onto the courts of eternity. We, we change our settings from that which is important now, that which, will, which washes now, that which is plausible now, to that which is on that final day. I just remind us on the outset that what matters on that day, on the day of judgment, ought to be what matters now. If that's what really, really matters then, what is said and what is done on that day, then surely those things are what ought to loom largest for us even now. And so the main thing, the matter before us is who is, is Christ going to receive as his own? Who is he going to openly confess that these are my people? Who is that? Who will Christ own in that larger sense? Well, the very simple answer, you've already read it, I won't keep you in any suspense, is that those who confess him, he will confess. Well, let me just say that the topic and the title of this sermon is simply that question, who will Christ own? And the first point is the answer to the question, those who confess him. Then there are a couple of negative answers. Not those who deny him. Not those who blaspheme the Spirit. Fourthly and finally, that the Spirit will help. Because I want us to see as we go through this that this has nothing to do with our own strength. In the end, the, the answer to that question, those who confess will not be those who are strong enough, those whom Christ will, uh, will confess, or those who are strong enough to confess him, strong enough to remain faithful on their own strength. That's not what I'm trying to say. This is all of God. And if you are enabled to confess, you can be certain that it's because the Holy Spirit enables you to do that. So again, the, the title is, Who Will Christ Own? That question And there are the four points. Those who confess him. Secondly, not those who deny. Thirdly, not those who blaspheme. But fourth, the spirit will help. So the first point is those who confess him. In verse 8, also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the son of man, will also confess before the angels of God. Now there's a huge contrast here before. It's such a wonderful expression it can't really be improved upon who can improve upon such a wonderful um, contrast there but one is the setting 
Rather than just another day in which truth or falsehood can be said without much of a consequence, this is on that day, on that final day, the day of judgment in which everything is going to come to light. That day is more momentous. That day means vastly much more than what is said now. But then also the contrast is with the audience. It's not just men who, as we know, are all too ready to receive and to believe a lie. In fact, we know that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So we understand that what is said before men sometimes can be said without much consequence and sometimes said without much fear of things being found out. But the audience, rather, is the angels of God. The unfallen angels, those who have never sinned, never once turned aside from all the righteous requirements of the law. They have never once failed to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They've never failed to love their neighbor as themselves. These ones who share God's own hatred for all that is false, when when God hates all that is false, when he hates a lie, we know that those holy angels imitate him perfectly in that. And what is said before them on that day is of the greatest of consequences. Now, even greater than that, even greater is the one who's going to be doing the speaking on that great day. The one who is going to be doing the confessing on that great day is Christ Jesus. He's no mere angel. They're just creatures. He is the creator. And what is more, he is not a witness. He is the judge. He himself, he's not, he is our advocate, thankfully, but he is also our judge. For the Father, we know from John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. I wonder how that, that struck the Pharisees when they heard those words. These ones who dishonored the Son, those who blasphemed him, those who condemned him, that in fact the Father did not reserve judgment to himself personally and the, the first person, but rather this judgment was given to the Son for the specific reason that all should honor him as the judge. And what matters on that day? What matters is the judgment that he, this judge, renders. The names that he calls out, that he confesses, identifies, marks as his own. It's, been, it's explained in many ways, isn't it, in Scripture? Sometimes it's the division of the sheep and the goats. Who's going to be among the sheep as opposed to the goats? And who is it? Who is he going to confess on the day? It's very simply, whoever confesses me. Whoever confesses Christ. It's so simple. Now, in some sense, it's the emphasis, of course, is on his name. Whoever confesses me, the emphasis on that one. That, like in Acts 4.12, there is, now there is no other salva- salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's a great emphasis of Acts. That this is the only name, this is the name by which you must put your faith in. There is no such thing as this anonymous Christianity. There is no Tashland. There is no Christians who are actually Muslims, but somehow they, they confess Christ in some other way. Not at all. You confess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or you're not among those whom he is going to confess. Those who confess me. And all that goes along with that name, by the way. Not the mere name, 
But the whole confession of faith, Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now all those things are true, so it's, it's in the specific name of Christ. It's the confession in the whole, the broader sense of that name and all that goes along with it. But in this context, it is particularly those who are willing to identify with him in his shame and suffering. Those who are willing to remain confessing him, to be in that state of of public confession of Christ, even when the pressure is on them. We remember Luke 9.23. He said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We said, what is this taking up a cross? It's identifying this instrument of torture and of execution. It's identifying with one who's an enemy of the state, the enemy of the Roman Republic. Or the the Roman Empire. It's an instrument of shame. That he says, you must identify with me in this. He says, those who confess me, I will confess. It is not to confess a name without any notice. Jesus. Or consequence done in a corner. It is rather to identify publicly with one who is considered shameful, an enemy of all that is respectful in this world. These are the ones, those who do that are the ones that Jesus says, I will confess on that day. Now, of course, there is the flip side to that. Our second point is not those who deny him. The other side of that contrast, that parallel Verse 9, but he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. We don't need to wonder. We don't need to kid ourselves. If there are those who are denying God or denying the Lord Jesus Christ, they will certainly be denied on that day. The very same setting before the holy angels on the same day, that last day, that same judge will render the very opposite judgment for those who have in this world done the opposite to him. Those who deny me before men. Now I just said that the words that are said here before sinful men are of less consequence than what Jesus will say on that last day. It's true. The words themselves are not going to stand. They are said, they are throwaway words, and they, they may well fall to the ground. Most do. But that does not mean that there are no consequences for those who say them. There are great consequences for those who say those words in this world. Great consequences for those who deny Christ in this world. Jesus affirms that there will be very serious consequences. Those who deny him here in this world, before men, these he will deny before the angels and before his heavenly Father, and they will be the ones who are cast in hell. The one whom he says, fear the one who has the power to, after he is killed, to cast in hell. He says, let me tell you who you are. Those who deny me. And he was speaking to them, wasn't he? He was face to face with those who denied him before men. And he's making very plain the judgment that he is going to render on that day. And with Christ, of course, we know that these declarations made in advance have every standing. We consider also the parallel text of Luke 9.26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. 
And we have to be, again, reminded of this identification between Christ and his world. Because otherwise, we might think that it's any old Christ. A Christ maybe of our imagination, a creation, of, of our own creation and, and desires. Or maybe we think that it's a half-Jesus that we can confess. A Jesus in which we pick and choose the elements that we like. But it's not that. It's the whole Jesus. It's all of his word. Every last bit of it, the whole, that's why it's so important that the churches preach the whole counsel of God. Because, again, in this other, this parallel passage, which explains in, in greater detail the same thing is, whoever is ashamed of me and my words. And so that means that we don't have an option there. We don't say, well, yes, I agree with this and that and the other, but, you know, the world really doesn't like oh, I don't know, the whole idea that that God created all things out of nothing in the space of six days. And so that's the one thing I'm going to deny. Or that, you know, I'm okay with this idea that we should love one another. But, you know, I I don't know. There's one little part. There's a few spaces here and there in the Old Testament. Okay, yes, and Paul mentions it a couple times too. All right, well, it's all over the Bible that homosexuality is a sin. But, But let's... Let's not talk about that. No, you don't have that option, actually. To deny that truth, to deny any part of the truth of the Word of God, is tantamount to denying Christ. He who is ashamed of me and my Word, you see. These are the ones that he is going to be ashamed of when he comes. These are the ones that he is going to deny. Well, going on to a more positive understanding of this, at some level, Jesus' statement is just a restatement of the gospel and both sides of that coin. Those who believe will be saved and those who don't won't. It's the other part, John 3.16, everyone knows that. Go on to John 3.18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It's as simple as that. Those who don't believe will be condemned. However, what Jesus is pointing out here is not what is going on in someone's heart, but what is going on in their mouth, you see. That's, that's what we're saying. Again, we're in this passage here, here in Luke 12, the context is hypocrisy and sometimes the difference between those two things. And he's trying to align that. And there is something more valuable, something more valid about what is said under pressure. Right? That's what is so crucially important about the parable of the, the sower. You remember the second category of seed, those who fall away. Under what circumstances do those people fall away? Matthew thirteen twenty. He who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. You see that? I'll read it again. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. It's not on the, the clear, beautiful weather situation, sunny weather. But it's when a storm of persecution comes. Then you find out the reality of what is in that person's heart. 
And that's the context of this denial here. We're not speaking of an easy day, a day in which Christ and his word are held in high esteem by everyone, in which there are no consequences for those who uh, uphold these things and confess them. But the reality is seen in the context of persecution. This one, this second seed, his, at first his profession is utterly indistinguishable from those who believe. It says he receives it with joy. It's only when the heat is turned up. It's only when there's pressure applied because of the word that the reality of that person's hypocrisy becomes apparent. And so it is in Revelation. In the letters to the seven churches, we see the value of the faithful confession. For instance, in Revelation 3.8, I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door. No one can shut it, for you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. The reason why it's valuable to Christ is because there was severe persecution for that church in which both the Jewish synagogue and the Roman government were colluding in this persecution. And he says, that's valuable to me. You guys aren't perfect. But the fact that you have not denied my name under severe persecution is of great value before me. And he owns this to be of his true church. Now you say, what about Peter? What about that awful example of Peter? Is this not an exception to the principle? Well, we all know Peter's failure to confess Christ. In fact, rather the reality that he denied Christ at the court of the high priest But what was his general prevailing situation of his life? He summarized it in Matthew 19, 27. Peter said to him, see, we have left all and followed you. Okay, he publicly identified with Christ. Those others who are not willing because they were going to be cast out of the synagogue, he was willing to come with him. He laid aside all other things to be his disciple. And what was his situation thereafter? Willing absolutely to stand and to be persecuted. And in fact, he was martyred at the end, for the name of Christ. And so we have to understand in this principle, it is not a temporary blip that is being spoken of, but rather the general prevailing situation of our our words and hearts. Well, thirdly, we have to say another not, not those who blaspheme Verse 10, if anyone speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, we've touched on this issue before in Luke 11. But just for a a fresh perspective on this, to get it really clear what this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, let's turn to Mark 3.22. I hope to explain this in the course of just a couple of minutes. Mark 3.22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he cast out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? He goes on. In verse 27, uh, let's see, uh, verse 28, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. And if the verse stopped there, there might be some question as to what this constitutes, what this blasphemy is. But it explains it in verse 30. Because they said he has an unclean spirit. It is defined. It is clear. That's what this is. Those who are really convinced 
that Jesus Christ was not animated by the Holy Spirit, but by a wicked, evil spirit, by Satan himself. These have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, and there is no forgiveness for them. How could there be forgiveness for those who are truly convinced that Christ was animated by an evil spirit? They have removed themselves from that possibility. That's the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. And it scarcely needs to be said. Now, by the way, going back to to Luke in in chapters 11 and 12, these are the ones he's actually speaking to. That's why he's saying it here. Because there are those in that audience who actually did believe that this is by Beelzebub he's casting out the demons. And to those he says, guess what? You're not coming either. You can be certain that they will not be confessed on that day, not those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. So not those who deny, not those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but let's say something else about the Holy Spirit, because fourthly and finally, it is the Holy Spirit who will help us. Verse 11, Now when they bring you to the synagogue and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And and just incidentally, I'd say at the outset, when they bring you, not if, when they bring you, count on it, there will be a time of persecution because if if the parable of the sower has any validity whatsoever, and look, let's not get wrapped up on, okay, are we really being persecuted in this country right now or is there a a, a definition of it? Does it really count? I mean, in, in, in Syria, they're actually being beheaded, but, you know, we're just losing our jobs or something like that. Don't, don't worry about that. Let's, let's speak of some, some concept by which those who faithfully put their trust and hope and publicly do so in Christ, pressure is being applied to them. Jesus said necessarily that has to happen to everyone in this world. Ounce, how would that parable to sower be true? There must be an occasion soon enough in the believer's life, an occasion by which some sort of persecution or tribulation arises because of the word of God. And therefore, what is true and what is false becomes known in that persecution. Anyhow, the point is here, he's assuming it. Not if they bring it, when they bring it. Because it's going to happen. On that moment, the Holy Spirit is going to teach you. Now, we know that one of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit at all times and all places for God's people is that he is our teacher. John sixteen thirteen. when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. That is his great work. That is his great ministry. But here in this context, it means something a little different. It means that beyond that, he's going to enable us to stand. That's the thing. If you're thinking, if it's really true, all that Jesus has said thus far, that it totally, completely matters what you say right now, whether you confess or whether you deny, then shouldn't you be shaking in your boots and saying, wait a minute, I'm, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll deny him tomorrow. I know myself. I'm not strong. I'm weak. And he says, don't worry about it. There's this thing. There's this one. There is this God the third person of the, the Trinity, whose name is the Holy Spirit, who has the power to enable you to stand in that day. You don't, don't worry. If you're his, he will enable you. Now, the specifics of that is that you shouldn't overly burden yourself 
with making worldly arguments uh, this way or that, using man's wisdom, okay? Because rather, what he says is the Spirit leads us in his truth. He's not going to give us some sort of clever worldly argument on that day. That's not what he's saying. He's going to illuminate and bring to mind the truth of God, which he's already given to us in Scripture. Because what matters is the testimony. What Christ is pleased with is the testimony of he and his word. Not of clever worldly philosophy. Not of pragmatism. But of his word. That's what the Holy Spirit is going to lead. And that is precisely what happens. You look, when Paul is brought before kings, the Holy Spirit leads him to stand, leads him to be bold on a day when others would crumble, leads him to be a faithful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And that's the promise to us. I don't come to you with a new burden. I don't come to you saying, stand or else on your own strength. I say That God's beloved people, God's own chosen, his elect, his covenant people, they will be enabled to stand because the Holy Spirit is real. And though it is true that those who deny him, that he will deny, God himself will enable you to stand through the power of the Spirit. Now, let me just summarize then this, this sermon and words given to me by Matthew Henry. You will be owned or disowned by Christ in the great day, according as you now own or disown him. It's a great summary, isn't it? As you now own or disown him. Because some people imagine that there'll be some easier day in the future, some time to confess Christ, some easier environment which to do that. But this text says, stop kidding yourself. What is happening right now is what is going to happen in the future. One thing that's been interesting in this recent time, we praise God for the life of Brian Norton and all the things that were done through him, including this church. That was at one point on his list of things to do, plant church in Gateshead. Check. It was done. But you know what else? This is something to keep in mind. There were many things left undone on his desk. There was things that he was planning. There was a list of other churches, you know, that he hoped to plan. There was a Christian university, actually, that he hoped to found. There were things that were left undone. There was even a sermon that he was thinking of preaching. He was, he was talking it over with Brenda the night before he died. I think maybe I can preach. But God didn't give him that chance. And this is a godly man who is more than usual upheld by the Lord, whom God blessed in his ways. How can we possibly imagine that there is another day to stand for Christ? How can we possibly presume to put that on our our things to do some other day? This is the day to stand. This is the day to confess Christ. And I would say as well then, let that be our intention, let that be our settled plan that we be faithful. Last application, we should cultivate good friends. And let me just say this. We should befriend unbelievers. Alans, how are they going to hear the truth? Alans, how are they going to see the light? But we must draw a distinction between our close friends whose opinion we care about 
and those with whom we have a more at, uh, at arm's length relationship with. Even secular people understand, you see, that we end up becoming the average of our five closest friends. Have you ever heard that? It's true. In every, every, every way, they, they've even demonstrated that your income will absolutely reflect the average of your five closest friends. And there's lots of other objective ways in which you begin to resemble them. You resemble one another. I can certainly say that the same for myself. I know that to be true. And you won't be the one exception to that. And so if your friendships include, say, I don't know, one dedicated Christian, maybe even a zealous Christian, but then you have uh, three unbelievers as well in that close circle of friends, what, what's going to happen? Where's that average? At best, you're talking about being a compromised Christian, a worldly Christian, if not even that. That's just the situation of having that kind of influence in your life. Draw that firm distinction, and particularly young people, draw that firm distinction. Who is in that circle of close friends? Whose opinion I care about? Whom I'm going to be sad if I disappoint? And so forth. And you say, these ones are Christians. And then you have another circle of those whom you're befriending with a specific intention to be a witness and a light to. Don't kid yourself. You will look like, act like, talk like, be like your close friends, given sufficient time. You're not the one exception to that. And so as a practical thing, we should cultivate good friends. But mainly I leave you again with the larger picture that the pressure of the world is there and continues to build and it is not for us to wait on the future to stand for him. It is not to let one thing go and find some other line to draw in the sand that never works. It is for us to stand for him and for all of his truth right now. Let's pray. Most gracious God and heavenly Father, we are thankful for this great gospel which come to us as a bright light. That, Lord, we don't have to wonder whom you may or may not confess on that great day. You have said plainly that those who confess you right now before men in this world, you will likewise confess then. So, Lord, we're thankful for such a gospel. But, Lord, we pray for those who have not yet done this. We pray, Lord, for those who need to put their faith in Christ, need to confess him publicly. We're reminded of the young people, indeed, who need to come to that public profession of faith. And Heavenly Father, how we pray for the whole church, but particularly for ourselves, that we would not compromise, that we'd not imagine that there is such a thing as exempting ourselves from the pressure of persecution in this world, but rather, Lord, our intention will be to stand, but not on our own strength, Lord, but rather in the faithful hope that you, the person of the Holy Spirit, will uphold us on that day. And how we pray, Lord, that you'd bring each and every one before us safely to that great day and that we would be publicly owned by Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.